Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week 7 of our Roman Catholicism study, and I thought it would be appropriate on week 7 to study the seven sacraments. So, without any further delay, let's go ahead and get right into it. So, what are the seven sacraments? So, I'm going to refer to something called the Catholic Encyclopedia, and it defines sacraments like this. They are outward signs of inward grace, instituted by Christ for our sanctification. So the Catholic Church teaches that God gives grace to man through both inward symbols and outward symbols, which the sacraments are the outward symbols. Because God has made these available, man is expected to make use of these God-given symbols for seeking and gaining sanctification. This is also mentioned in the Council of Trent, Session 7, which says this, If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law were not all instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord, or that there are more or less than seven, to wit, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, order, and matrimony, or even that any of these seven is not truly or properly a sacrament, let him be anathema. Canon 4. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them, or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification. Through all are not indeed necessary for any individual, let him be anathema. Canon number 8. If anyone saith that by the said sacraments of the new law, grace is not conferred through the act performed, listen to that wording there, but that faith alone in the divine promise suffices for the obtaining of grace, let him be anathema. Did you notice how it mentions acts performed, as in works? So that's going to be important later. So the Catholic Church has specific criteria in order for something to be considered a sacrament. It requires it to be an external, perceptible sign of sanctifying grace. It confers sanctifying grace. And it was established by Jesus Christ as a practice. So based on these criteria, the Church has seven sacraments that are expected to be followed. So they were already mentioned, but I'll, I'll say them one more time. The first one is baptism. The second one is penance. The third is the Holy Eucharist. The fourth is confirmation. The fifth is extreme unction or anointing of the sick. The sixth is holy orders. And the seventh is matrimony. We will be devoting an entire week for each of the first three sacraments on this list, baptism, penance, and the Holy Eucharist, but we'll be focusing today on the last four. On the surface, they do not appear to be harmful or against Scripture, but the one thing that you'll see that is common between the sacraments is the idea that God conveys sanctifying grace to his people through the sacraments. In other words, if you do not practice these sacraments in a Catholic manner, God will not bestow his grace upon you, causing you to not be sanctified 
by the Holy Spirit. By not having God's grace, you cannot retain your salvation. This concept is nowhere listed in the Bible. Before we go any further, let me read you a couple more pieces of scripture that will support against this. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. For he, being God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast completely contradicts what we just said already. So we're not off to a good start here. But anyway, let's go ahead and go through the last four sacraments, and I'm going to give you the biblical reference that the Catholic Church claims as its origin, and then we'll talk about the truth of its legitimacy. So the first one we'll talk about is the sacrament of confirmation. So the scriptures they use to justify this practice is Acts chapter 8, verse 17, which says, Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paragraphs 1287 and 1295 of the Catholic Catechism say this, This fullness of the Spirit was not to remain uniquely the Messiah's, but was to be communicated to the whole Messianic people. On several occasions, Christ promised this outpouring of the Spirit, a promise which he fulfilled first on Easter Sunday, and then more strikingly at Pentecost. Filled with the Holy Spirit, the apostles began to proclaim the mighty works of God, and Peter declared this outpouring of the Spirit to be the sign of the Messianic Age. Those who believed in the apostolic preaching were baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit in their turn. By this anointing, the conformant received the mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit. A seal is a symbol of a person a sign of personal authority or ownership of an object. Hence, soldiers were marked with their leaders' seals, and masters marked their slaves with seals. A seal authenticates a judicial act or document and occasionally makes it secret. The Catholic Church teaches that Christ instituted the sacrament of confirmation when he promised the Holy Spirit would come after them, and this was in John chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 15, verse 26, and chapter 16, verse 13. 
where he mentions the Holy Spirit. There are seven steps needed to receive the full confirmation or acceptance as a member of the church. They are a combination of rituals, reciting specific words, being baptized, and the laying of hands by the priest. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it confers the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, counsel, fortitude, piety, and fear of the Lord. Upon completion of the confirmation, you are officially sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a formal training program or formal acceptance into a church, but it does not grant power from the Holy Spirit or supply grace to the individual. Not only that, but we are reminded on how many steps and rituals are required to gain and keep true salvation in the Catholic Church. All that is truly required from the believer is to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, which causes the Holy Spirit to enter into the believer forever, and he cannot be lost or revoked. At the time of salvation, the Holy Spirit supplies all that is needed for his spiritual service. And this is the scriptures I'd like to counter with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's through Christ, not through ritual. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And then also 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Do you see the difference here? Because it says in the Catholic tradition that you have to receive the sacrament of confirmation by reciting words, doing rituals, laying on hands, and that it confers the holy gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are wisdom, understanding, guidance, counsel, piety, fear of the Lord, etc. Does that person seem radically different right after confirmation? How many Catholics do you know that practice these attributes at all times? I'm not saying every Catholic is bad, and I'm not saying every believer in Jesus Christ, true believer in Jesus Christ, 
is perfect and we never make mistakes, but there should be fruit that is born from the believer. The second sacrament we're going to look at is anointing of the sick. And we're going to use their scriptural references, which are Acts chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, which says this. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, there it is again, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. The other reference is James chapter 5, verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Paragraphs 1499 and 1519 of the Catholic Catechism say this, By the sacred anointing of the sick and the prayer of the priests, the whole church commends those who are ill to the suffering and glorified Lord, that he may raise them up and save them. And indeed, she exhorts them to contribute to the good of the people of God by freely uniting themselves to the passion and death of Christ. The celebration of the sacrament includes the following principal elements. The priests of the church, in silence, lay hands on the sick. They pray over them in the faith of the church. This is the epiclesis proper to the sacrament, that they then anoint them with oil blessed, if possible, by the bishop. These liturgical actions indicate what grace this sacrament confers upon the sick. So another way of calling this besides just the anointing of the sick, the actual word for it is extreme unction, which is the laying on of hands to heal sick people or offer last rites to someone who is dying. The sick person is anointed on their forehead and hands with oil that is blessed by a bishop during Holy Week. The priest lays their hands upon them, recites specific prayers, and appeals to God's will for healing of the body and soul. The church believes that this practice applies grace to the individual to prepare for death. It offers them an opportunity to have sins forgiven before entering purgatory, and it allows them to reconcile their soul before God. There's no denying that the Bible is full of examples of men like Paul and even Christ himself laying their hands on an individual in order to heal them. However, this practice is not exclusive, and it was not done in the manner that the Catholic Church performs it. The Bible is also full of times where healing was performed without physical touch, or even their presence to be required. By saying that God can only heal by laying on of hands, citing specific words, is to limit God's unlimited power and ability. Again, there is nothing wrong with laying your hands on someone and praying for healing, but we must be careful, however, to understand the biblical context. We cannot assume that we all have the spiritual gift of healing or some magic words 
in combination with physical touch, will bestow healing. Again, the grace of God cannot be earned or gained by performing rituals. That's just simply not how it works. So these are the three scriptures I would like to offer to counter what we just read. Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 46. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. The third sacrament we're going to look at is holy orders. And this is from John chapter 20, verse 23, that they reference as their scriptural basis for it. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If he retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Paragraphs 1536 and 1576 of the Catechism say this, Holy orders is the sacrament through which the mission entrusted by Christ to his apostles continues to be exercised in the church until the end of time. Thus, it is the sacrament of apostolic ministry. It includes three degrees. The episcopate, which are bishops, the presbyterate, the priests, and the diaconate, deacons. Since the sacrament of holy orders is the sacrament of the apostolic ministry, it is for the bishops, as the successor of the apostles, to hand on the gift of the Spirit, the apostolic line. Validly ordained bishops, for example, those who are in the line of apostolic succession, validly confer the three degrees of the sacrament of holy orders. So the sacrament of holy orders is the means by which men are ordained to the clergy of the church. So as we've read, there are three different degrees for the greater orders. But there are also four lesser orders that someone can be appointed to in the church. Think of it as kind of a special assignment or some sort of specialization. So the four that you can also be, in addition to those other three, are a porter, a reader, an exorcist, and an acolyte. To be appointed to the greater orders, it has to be a bishop who performs these rites on you. A, a normal priest can appoint lesser orders. The minister will lay hands upon the individual and recite the prayer of ordination, which is believed to bestow spiritual gifts and grace upon the person necessary to carry out this ministry. The Protestant Church only has two ordinations, pastors and deacons. Both Catholics and Protestants use 1 Timothy chapter 3 as the qualifications for men 
to be considered for these positions, but we notice that the Catholics take this one step further. Again, they require laying on of hands and reciting specific words in order to gain blessings from God. Remember that God does not care about rituals or tradition, but when we speak to him from our hearts, we align ourselves to his will. There are no magic words or rituals that can convince God to provide more grace or additional spiritual gifts. It is a good thing to be approved as a leader of the church, but it does not supply conditional or sanctifying grace. If that were the case, that would mean that not everyone is qualified to have grace in their lives, and that's simply not biblical. When the Holy Spirit dwells within us, he provides us with spiritual gifts from the beginning. We may not know what they are yet or how they can be developed, but the groundwork has already been laid for us. So I'd like to offer a couple of counter verses regarding this topic. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. It was the Holy Spirit that fell upon them, not the priest. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and that no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. The final sacrament we'll look at today is the sacrament of matrimony. Their scriptural reference is Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Paragraphs 1601 and 1620 of the Church Catechism says this, The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life is by its nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. This covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of the sacrament. Both the sacrament of matrimony and virginity for the kingdom of God come from the Lord himself. It is he who gives them meaning and grants them the grace which is indispensable for living them out in conformity with his will. Esteem of virginity for the sake of the kingdom and the Christian understanding of marriage are inseparable and they reinforce each other. Of all the sacraments that the Catholics follow, this is the one that we can mostly agree with. And I did say mostly, not completely, but mostly. Although the Pope has recently accepted homosexuals within the Church, the sacrament for the time being remains intact. It remains a holy union between a man and a woman in the sight of God, according to the scripture we just read which commands them to remain pure before marriage and to keep a lifelong commitment to their spouse. There are, however, issues with the Catholic understanding of matrimony that we need to address. First, according to church tradition, getting married fulfills certain vows made during the sacrament of baptism and confirmation. Secondly, marriage bestows both sanctifying grace making the couple spiritually stronger, and sacramental grace, which gives supernatural love and patience within the relationship. Lastly, it creates a bond between the spouses. In paragraph 1638 of the Catechism, it says, From a valid marriage arises a bond between the spouses, which by its very nature is perpetual and exclusive. Furthermore, in a Christian marriage, the spouses are strengthened and, as it were, consecrated for the duties and the dignity of their state by a special sacrament. The sacrament of marriage and the concept of the family were both designed by God. Throughout Scripture, God showed a parallel between him and the nation Israel, where he is the husband and the people are his bride. Jesus is also described in the same way in relation to his church. While we cannot refute that marriage is a sacred union, it does not motivate God to provide further grace, as if we, we had to work for it. So here are the three final scriptures I'll offer as a counter to the broader issues with, with the sacrament of matrimony. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 2 through 4, and then we'll jump to verses 31 through 33. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword 
found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Then we go down to verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, by covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So those are four of the seven sacraments. I want to call these ones the minor sacraments. So, over the next three weeks, we will spend one week going through each of the main three sacraments because there is a lot to them that cannot be explained in a single episode as well as there's so many problems with them. So we certainly need to spend the time fully understanding the concepts that they believe in and the ones that we actually should believe in. Next week, we'll cover baptism. The following week, we'll do penance, and then finally, we will do the 
Holy Eucharist to end the discussion on the sacraments. I hope this was helpful for you and also to use in your discussions with Catholics and just have a better understanding of the Christian worldview that we should believe in, that we don't get our lines crossed with other religions and believe things that are simply not true. But that's all I have for today, and thank you for listening as always. My name is Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.